When Russia launched its full-scale invasion of Ukraine on February 24th, nations around the world started banning Russian aircraft from their airspace. The West soon followed this with sanctions prohibiting the sale of aviation goods and technology, terminating deliveries, insurance, and other aviation services. Before the invasion, Russian commercial aviation was run primarily with foreign planes. In fact, Russian airlines were leasing more than 500 aircraft from Airbus and Boeing. When sanctions forced the end of these leasing agreements, some analysts predicted the imminent collapse of Russia's aviation sector. I can tell you that for all intents and purposes, Russian aviation has, at best, about three weeks before its show over, wrote Jan Nedvedek, a self-described aviation industry insider, in a tweet on March 1st that attracted almost 60,000 likes. I woke up the following morning with 25,000 retweets and interview requests from CNN, the BBC, CNBC, Deutsche Welle, and Forbes, he told Vice News. But here we are in September, and Russian airlines are still in business. In May, after telling Russian aircraft operators not to fly to international destinations to avoid the seizure of their planes, the Russian government signed a law allowing these companies to keep and operate the leased aircraft, effectively stealing them. And while those early prognostications of impending doom didn't pan out, the industry's future outlook is nevertheless grim. As many as 19 million fewer passengers will travel by air in Russia this year, says the country's own transportation ministry. It's an exaggeration to say that Russian aviation has been cut off from the outside world, but the loss of routes to popular Western destinations has squeezed airlines' profits, while sanctions complicate basic maintenance. In late July, for example, several Russian airlines reportedly advised pilots not to use their brakes so much when landing in order to extend the equipment's lifespan. To keep its fleet in the air, Russia must now rely chiefly on repairing planes using spare parts from other aircraft it already possesses, a policy charmingly known as cannibalization. So imagine you've boarded an eastbound plane in Moscow. Even a direct flight only halfway across the country to Novosibirsk takes about four hours. Maybe two hours in, somewhere around Yekaterinburg, your aircraft experiences a mechanical failure that knocks it out of the sky or forces an emergency landing. There's a fire on the runway, passengers and crew can't get out in time, people die, and the whole thing was preventable. What if international sanctions against Russia's aviation industry lead to safety lapses that jeopardize commercial air travel in Russia, maybe even culminating in a disaster? Welcome back to The Naked Pravda, folks. I'm your host, Kevin Rothrock, Medusa's English Language Managing Editor. Before jumping into today's interviews, allow me to remind listeners that Medusa now relies on contributions from our international audience to sustain our work. Every day, millions of people from Russia and other countries read our news coverage. Even though they're now based abroad, our journalists obtain exclusive information about what goes on behind the closed doors of the Russian authorities. In English, our team delivers Medusa's most important stories and reaches thousands of journalists and professionals all over the world with a special newsletter and podcast. 
this one, in fact. So please visit our website to make a one-time or recurring donation and tell your friends and colleagues about our fundraising if you can. So on today's show, I spoke to two experts about how international sanctions have affected Russia's commercial aviation industry. To understand why Russian airlines have been forced to cut safety corners, risking an aviation catastrophe, the first thing to know is just how dependent the industry is on Western suppliers. How dependent is all this on foreign suppliers and foreign manufacturers? Let's say before the the most recent sanctions were imposed. Uh, pretty much 99.9%. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, it's extraordinary. You look back to the legacy of Soviet aviation and they replicated a kind of funhouse mirror version of Western aviation. That's Richard Abulafia, managing director of the aerospace consultancy Aerodynamic Advisory. He says Russian commercial aviation emerged as an inferior imitation of Western aircraft, and these planes became obsolete as soon as they had to compete against the likes of Boeing and Airbus. Through reverse engineering and... Reverse engineering and coming up with analogs of pretty much every major aircraft type almost. You know, as a matter of fact, only Russia and the U.S. ever created their own wide-body jets. It was a pretty impressive achievement. And of course, when the wall came down, it all proved to be completely uncompetitive and utterly irrelevant in the real world. So is that, are we going to get that again? If this goes it on long sure enough? It sure looks like we've seen this movie before. <laughs> I mean, it looks a lot like uh, Soviet Union 2.0, only with uh, stupider people. Uh-huh. Uh, it's so is it, it 2.0? I mean, that usually signifies something a little bit more sophisticated, but you're saying that it will not be? Well, that's true. It's, it's probably going to be sort of the, the dumbed-down uh-huh. Soviet Union. Actually, the big difference might be that the corruption back then was pretty minor and consisted mm. of access to Western consumer goods in separate department stores, and now it consists of siphoning off vast sums of cash and moving it into property in Antibes in London. Mm-hmm. And maybe you've already answered this by pointing at corruption, but one, one of the questions I had was, I, I assumed your answer was going to be that the the industry is extremely dependent or was extremely dependent on foreign suppliers. Why didn't, why didn't they take steps to become more self-sufficient? I mean, not only has, you know, this Soviet Union fell obviously three decades ago, but also even since 2014, it seems like the writing's been on the wall that these sanctions are likely going to remain in place. And now obviously there are even more strict sanctions in, in place, but like, why is it just, is it beyond their capabilities? Is it, is, is corruption keeping them making, is this too big, great an obstacle or like, why didn't they, why weren't they better prepared? Yeah. This is the million dollar question, right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it is pretty extraordinary because they do have this very proud legacy yeah. of commercial aviation engineering and military aviation engineering. Mm-hmm. And instead they did nothing. They started moving in the general direction of replicating Western technologies and components for existing aircraft. Mm. It never really got very far. It was always, you know, sort of in the five-year plan, but not really all that active. And part of it is just the huge scale of trying to replicate all of those technologies and components. You know, Mm. very few companies and countries actually have the ability to build their own turbine engine. Mm -hmm. That's a real black art. And on top of that, you had corruption endemic corruption. As a matter of fact, you know, so much of the industry was absorbed by Rostec, led by the uh, the oligarch Chemizov. And that was a recipe for just siphoning off monstrous amounts of revenue or mm-hmm. what, what should have gone into everything from 
military spare parts and munitions and military training to replicating that commercial technology capability for the airline sector. And instead, again, went to yachts on the Côte d'Azur and uh, property right. in London. Is military aviation in Russia just as dependent on foreign parts and suppliers, or is it? do they have a bit more self-sufficiency there? They have a lot more self-sufficiency there. The big question, of course, being semiconductors. We don't know to what extent that capability or that technology was embedded in there. Certainly, there are reports that are, that are fascinating that they had to use dishwasher semiconductors to right. make some of their stuff work. I don't know how true that is, but it is pretty clear that the Sukhoi series of combat aircraft was fully competitive on world markets, whereas there was nothing of the like in the commercial jetliner arena. And can they transition? I mean, I know this has been a struggle for a lot of Soviet to Russian industry. You know, this, the USSR was so militarized in all of its production and, you know, trying to transfer this to their technology and so on to civilian products. Do you see any possibility that they'll be able to take that marginally better self-sufficiency in military aviation and, and plug it into their civilian production? You know, it's, it's completely conceivable. It would take mm -hmm. two things, a high level of competence and a low level of corruption. Mm -hmm. For so far, it's been exactly the opposite. You also have a political culture of, well, the opposite of free information flows. You know, mm -hmm. bad news is not delivered. Right. You could make a, you know, you, you could make an offhand comment and say they've given the word Potemkin a really bad name. Mm -hmm. You know, the reality has not been made clear to some of the people in charge. And mm -hmm. it, you, this is a feature of any command style economy, yeah. an inability to pass bad news upward. When you talk about bad news, do you mean like a particular plane part or something that's in development and it's not going as planned and simply they're not they're not passing that information up the chain or what's yes exactly we can't do this we can't build it we need more resources and time and frankly we need to work with international partners in right. order to achieve these goals because we can't do it ourselves uh -huh. that kind of news that's not good for your career yeah <laughs> now since february 24th and the expanded full-scale invasion of ukraine obviously the sanctions on the aviation industry in particular have become a lot more significant, severe, and so on. What are some of the the corners that Russian aviation have had to cut to keep their fleets in the air? Because one of the things that, one of the kind of trending commentaries in the first days and weeks after the invasion began was Russian airlines have a, have a week left and then they're done, they're all grounded, or they're going to start falling out of the sky or something. And that has not happened. So how have the Russian airlines managed to continue operating? This is a good question. And I suspect what they've been doing has been working just fine and will keep working just fine until it doesn't and things mm -hmm. will fall off a cliff. Mm -hmm. You know, I suspect it's a combination of making do with existing inventories, making stuff last a little longer because it's now under Russian certification and Russian rules, which means, you know, if something was supposed to be overhauled or a part was supposed to be replaced, yeah, let's just put that off for a bit. Yeah. And We've also heard reports of cannibalization. You know, you've got a large fleet. If utilization drops by a third, you've got a bunch of jets that you can simply take parts from. There is that were, not done uh, elsewhere? Is that not is that frowned on typically? Or It's completely, you know, it's a good way to destroy value. Uh, <laughs> and uh -huh. of course, now that they're no longer on Western registrations, we don't really have the record keeping, which means all these hundreds of jets, 500 or so aircraft, they're going to be completely useless. 
if borders ever open up again. The yeah, records haven't been kept. I see. This is, you know, the end of Russia as a participant in the international civil air transport industry for many years to come. When it was the Soviet Union, were they sharing that information? Is this like in that regard, is it worse or is it the same? Well, things have changed quite a lot. I mean, mm -hmm. obviously, back then they really did meet their own needs. So, you mm -hmm. know, you've had an Ilyushin aircraft with a Solovyev engine. All of the components were uh, built in country. I see. Semiconductors weren't a major factor. And yeah, it was all the records were kept in country and things weren't bad. I mean, their safety standards were never anything like what they were in the West. But, you know, they played by their own rules and that was fine. Mm -hmm. Things, of course, have changed. The industry has gotten a lot more global, a lot more dependent yeah. upon high-tech components and international data sharing and whatever else. Mm -hmm. This is a, a very different world. I know that in April, the FAA downgraded Russia's air traffic safety rating to a category two. Can you explain what that means exactly? Or what does it mean to downgrade their air traffic safety rating? It's basically just, you know, a realistic view of how safe things are in terms mm -hmm. of processes and procedures. Hardly surprising. Really? What's like one safety procedure that the Russian airlines have had to change? You've mentioned that they're no longer sharing the records of the work that's being done in the planes. And so that sounds obviously worrisome. Are there other examples of things they've changed that lead to them downgrading their safety rating? Well, that's absolutely the very biggest. But of yeah. course, you know, parts transparency, what was moved here, what was moved there. I see. Yeah. You know, when was this last overhaul? It's not just the blanket statement that transparency or record keeping is, uh, has gone away. You look at what that means. Well, when was that APU maintained? The various components on those AP, that APU, when were they swapped out? What was done to what? I mean, mm -hmm. an aircraft is just the sum of its parts, yeah. right? All the technologies on board. There's... Well, in Top Gun, I learned that it's the pilot, not the plane. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a big part of it. But of course, that's combat aviation. <laughs> right. I've heard some people compare what's happening to Russian aviation now to what has already occurred in Iran. Do you think that's a good lesson to take in terms of what to expect? It is, but there are two very big differences. For one, the Iranian sanctions were far leakier. The Europeans were never terribly hard and fast about those sanctions the way America was. And there were other countries that were willing to, to trade with them. And of course, third-party players and you know various components. So even though their aviation industry did suffer from sanctions, it was never an absolute embargo. Mm -hmm. This is different because of uh, Europe's participation. And the other thing is that most Iranian aircraft that date back from that era, things were simply simpler back then. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you didn't need downloads of software because, the, well, whoops, there was no software. You know, mm -hmm. Semiconductors, again, not a thing. What you've got in Russia today is actually an astonishingly modern fleet of Airbuses and Boeings with computers built in the West and a dependence on software downloads and whatever else and components that are carefully tracked and very often have RFID chips and all this other stuff. That's a lot different from working with, well, you know, duct tape and whatever else that you could make do with back from the 70s. Right. <laughs> will China be able to come to the rescue of Russia? I mean, there's obviously the question of political will there and whether they would... Um... As I understand it, it's that they don't want to risk secondary sanctions. And so that's why there's a lot of reluctance on the part of Chinese industry in general across the spectrum of all spheres to sort of replace whatever business Russia was doing in the West. Does Chinese aviation have the capacity to do what 
Russia used to get with the West? Is there the technical know-how to actually start selling all the necessary spare parts and so on? Like, and if that's the because if there is, then you can. Then the question is really just when would China be willing to to do it? Right. This is a fascinating question because in a lot of ways, China had sort of been modeling itself on Russia, the heavy preponderance mm. of autarky, uh, indigenization, technology transfer stroke ripoffs, and of course, a state-owned industry. But they're really not any more advanced. There are no Chinese aircraft other than a couple of exceptions in the regional part of the space that, mm. that can do the job. Maybe in a few years, there will be. The problem is that they are dependent upon Western engines, Western avionics, Western components. So another interesting aspect is, yes, they probably could transfer parts and help support the Russians. They would instantly be cut off themselves because, of mm. course, there is, there is an end-user certification in mm -hmm. this industry. Mm -hmm. They are not allowed to do that. They would be breaking with the entire world economy. Right. So I, I think at this point, the biggest question you can ask across the board is to what extent China willing to hitch its wagon to the, the Russian yeah. force. Yeah. And you're saying this with, even with, you know, future aircraft development programs, there's a joint venture for a new wide body, the CR-929 between China and Russia. And it's sort of fraying at the seams. And it's pretty clear that Chinese know that if they do this, this aircraft will have absolutely no relevance or use outside of China or Russia. Right. So what kind of future does the Chinese government want for its people? Mm -hmm. They have to answer that. And aviation is really where that question hits the tarmac, if you will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> How safe was Russian aviation before these latest sanctions? Because there's kind of jokes that go on. They're not necessarily always funny either, because a lot of times they, it does seem like Russian planes regularly catch on fire on the runway or fall out of the sky. There's like one or two tragedies a year. Now, is that just sort of, the way the media covers it? Or did Russian aviation, commercial aviation for civilians and so on, in terms of documentation, was it actually unsafe? Or what was its rating before all this? Do you know? Like, Well, back in the day, it wasn't terribly safe because, of course, it revolved around Russian aircraft, which were certified and built to a very different standard. Mm -hmm. You know, when the wall came down, I remember somebody told me an FAA reciprocity person started dealing with the Russian or the Soviet, former Soviets and said, you know, okay, our standard is if an aircraft, a twin jet, loses an engine on the end of a runway, fully loaded, hot and high conditions, it still has to have the necessary power to take off. And the response, which was actually technically correct, is why? That won't happen very often. Mm -hmm. You know, we simply have very different standards. Mm -hmm. Now, what has happened over the past 30 years is that there are no Russian aircraft. I mean, not more than a handful yeah. um, and almost none, I think, in commercial service. Russian aviation simply depended upon Airbuses and Boeings. And that required them to take on the Western standards of safety and so on. Exactly right. Yeah, far safe. For all the upheaval in Russia's commercial aviation, the ordinary passenger's experience remains largely unchanged for now. Dr. Pavel Luzin, a visiting scholar at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, told me that the disappearance of certain routes is all that stands out so far. 
and he thinks the airlines will have enough sense and control over their own operations to halt service before the planes start dropping out of the sky. Do you know from the perspective of, say, an ordinary, just civilian, just boarding a flight, a domestic flight in Russia, have the changes, are the changes noticeable to the ordinary passenger? As an ordinary passenger, uh, no, I didn't feel uh, something during the last uh, six months before yeah. before my departure to the United States. Still not. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the main change that we as an as ordinary passengers can see, it is the absence of foreign flights. Of course, there are still flights to Armenia, Kazakhstan, Sri Lanka, right. for, for example. But uh, in previous years, Russian air companies conducted a lot of flights to Europe, to the United States. Mm-hmm. For instance, before the pandemic, before the pandemic, 2019, there were 73 million passengers in domestic flights and 55 million of passengers in foreign flights. So almost half and half. So what happens if in a year or if in two years, civilian aircraft just start falling out of the sky or if they start catching fire on the runway? Like one of the headlines or one of the like commentaries on social media that was trending really hard right in the early part of the war when these airline sanctions and aviation sanctions were being put in place was, oh, Russian airlines have a week left and then it's done. The industry's done. And here we are six months later. And as you say, if you're a passenger on one of these things, you barely even notice that anything's different. It's just there's a fewer, there are fewer routes, right? I mean, like, okay, whoop-de-doo. But what if that nightmare scenario occurs? What if the planes either no longer can take off, or if they start falling. I mean, like, what, what if there's like you know tragedy and so on? I'm not sure about tragedies, but of course uh, we do have an example of Iran that used uh, and still uses a lot of old-fashioned aircrafts, and the number of emergency cases there uh, is relatively mm-hmm. high. And the same was true for many Africans air companies in mm-hmm. previous years, before they started to to buy new aircrafts from, from the United States and from Europe. For instance, Ethiopian Airlines, they completely renewed their aircraft fleet. But uh, I presume that aircraft companies, they are not going to make a suicide and they are not going to kill passengers. Mm-hmm. So, in my yeah. opinion, the worst case scenario will mean that uh, the number of domestic routes will decrease and people will be forced to use uh, more trains, more buses, especially right. in European part of Russia. And uh, the air routes will continue to be only uh, to Siberia direction, to the Russian Far East direction to the mm-hmm. Arctic uh, regions direction directions mm-hmm. because it's impossible to go there only by train. It takes uh, many days uh, and it's impossible to go there by buses. So um, I presume that in case of absence, some you know, peace reconciliation uh, of, of this war, the Russian commercial aviation will face a huge degradation. And the Russian domestic manufacturing of commercial aircraft will never be enough. For instance, before the war, before 
the bridge between Pratt and Whitney and the United Aircraft Corporation, uh, Russia planned to produce up to 36 MS-21 aircrafts by the second half of 2020s. 36. Right. And half of them, half of them were planned to use Pratt and Whitney engines. On the, on the half of them uh, was planned to use Russia-made engines, BD, right, right. uh, BD-14. The same towards the old-fashioned models mm -hmm. of the Russian um, aircraft, maybe Soviet aircraft. Mm -hmm. For instance, in previous decades, Russia was able to produce only two aircrafts annually, two aircrafts IL-96. So if you produce two aircrafts annually, you cannot increase this number to, to 10 or to, to 20. Sure. Or, uh, towards uh, superjet, that is completely dependent on, on the foreign parts. The highest capacity, manufacturing capacity was uh, 37 aircrafts annually. And right now, uh, this number uh, has already decreased to, yeah. to less yeah. than 20. So um, right. it's impossible to make a substitution of the foreign aircrafts by right. the Russian-made aircrafts. So uh, that's mm. why I presume that the worst-case scenario means that the European part of Russia will lose most of its domestic flights and will use only railways right. and, uh, yeah. and buses. And do you think that the airlines will simply take stock of their the safety of their fleets and they'll just slowly decrease the number of routes as the number of their kind of serviceable aircraft fall? Or will they will they wait for something to happen, like for a plane to catch on fire on the runway or something? Like are they under pressure to keep up service as long as possible until something happens? Or do you think they have enough flexibility as businesses to slowly kind of reduce their service as they feel safe. They completely lost the, their region, their strategies. They cannot plan or forecast their future. So they're just waiting. They're just waiting for the end of the war. Maybe they're just waiting for Putin's death because yeah. it, it's also it's also the opportunity and it is also the option uh, for for solving the troubles, so uh, <laughs> yes, no, I, I I'm right. not kidding. Uh, I, I'm not kidding. Yeah. And uh, many other industries they are reading the same. Not only yeah. aircraft, uh, <laughs> not, not only commercial right. aviation. Yes, uh, be, right. Because as the current conditions, current circumstances, it is a direct road to suicide, to self right. ki killing, uh, and. That's why uh, air companies, uh, they, they are just waiting. And their region right now is completely opportunistic. So they know that, okay, in, in the following couple of months, we will be able to maintain our fleet. Okay, let's work. Maybe some of them may uh, predict their abilities for next six months, but uh, no more, no more than that. Now, when I read about Russian airlines being forced or, or, you know, the sanctions essentially leaving them with the choices of just shut down, go bankrupt, or keep their planes in the sky by cutting all these corners and so on and, and you know, becoming less transparent, I think like, okay, when's one of these planes going to fall out of the sky? Now, 
some people I've, I've raised this question with, they say, well, the Russian airlines will never let it get that far. They'll just ground their fleets eventually. And, you know, they won't wait for something catastrophic like that. Do you think it's feasible that, I mean, it sounds as though given kind of what they're doing, we're already in a place where that could potentially happen. Or do you think they have enough control over what's going on that they, they can get ahead, they can be ahead of this? Like, have they learned the safety lesson of having cooperated with the Western producers for so long? Or is this kind of, you, you, I think earlier you mentioned something, you use the metaphor of falling off a cliff. Is that possible? And if so, like what happens if that occurs? Yeah, right. I mean, but this is a decision by the state. I mean, what is happening in Russia across the board is that the state has to take over the entire economy. And of course, the aviation industry is no exception. So I like yeah. to think that the management of these airlines has learned all those lessons and know what needs to be done. And there's certainly a few data points that say, hey, they're thinking about the future. There's even one or two that would say, you've got to return these leased jets. Other people own them. We want mm -hmm. to be able to access Western financing in the future. They've been stopped down, of course. But the state ultimately has the final word. They've, nas they've effectively nationalized everything. Mm -hmm. So in that context, the, the question becomes, how desperate is the government? I suspect from the looks of things, they might get desperate. And as yeah. a consequence, things might get a bit desperate in aviation too. Mm -hmm. Now, if one or multiple commercial airplanes essentially crash or catch fire, and, and it becomes evident that the industry is being affected by by the sanctions, because right now it seems like they've been able to disguise that, at least from most commercial passengers. If that sort of thing becomes obvious to people either, because maybe just the fleets are grounded because they don't have good enough planes. Maybe they wait too long and some of the planes start malfunctioning and maybe even people get hurt. Are there automatic things that happen in aviation where, where like a kind of a wall slams down? Or is it, again, is it all up to political will? And in this case, if the state is in control, they can do whatever they want, or are there just sort of limitations that occur regardless? I'd love to say there's some kind of remote shutoff device for these aircraft, but there isn't. Yeah. The wall's already slammed down. They're just doing what they want with them. Most likely, the aircraft will simply be grounded and we'll have this fascinating experiment with the what was a relatively modern economy becoming a kind of a, a North Korea-style no-fly zone, yeah. you know, where people simply can't fly. Right. Uh, that is the base case scenario. The most interesting aspect in terms of long-term consequences that I think the industry is focused on is the financing aspect. There had been this agreement called the Cape Town Convention that basically allows financiers to repossess jets across mm -hmm. borders. Mm -hmm. And Russia was a signatory in it. Of course, they've become the first major country to violate that. Yeah. And uh, the consequence is from their future ability to access capital, not just for jets, but lots of heavy equipment mm -hmm. is uh, now quite suspect. And that's another fascinating outcome here. Are those contracts with the actual airlines? Like if now, if they just all declared bankruptcy and you get a whole new crop of airline companies, would they still, they would, they would be able to lease again, right? It would, or it would be a question of like credit reputation or how would they, how just, would, you know, credit reputation on a country by country, not airline by airline basis. And I think Russia might be regarded by the world financial community as something of an uninvestable right. pit. Yeah. So even you're saying that even if even if the war is resolved relatively soon and the sanctions are lifted quickly, which is which are both unlikely, that there's still this long they'd have to live down the bad reputation. It would take a long time. That's exactly right. It could yeah. take many years before that's recovered. Whereas the ability of the airlines to sort of to maintain appearances as they're doing now. That has a much shorter 
lifespan. Yes, that's right. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> well, I don't know if too many Russians are able to hear this anymore, but if they if they are, <laughs> I guess they ought to be worried. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, this is one of those places the state can put a brave face on things, but I expect yeah. it'll fall off faster than pretty much anything else about their uh, their internal situation. Right, right. Okay. You've been listening to The Naked Pravda, Season 3, where we're asking the question, what if, on issues related to major news stories in Russia. On today's show, you heard from aerospace expert Richard Abulafia and foreign policy and defense scholar Pavel Luzin about how international sanctions have forced Russia's commercial airlines to adopt dangerous maintenance policies that could risk the safety of passengers and the entire industry's future. I'm Kevin Rothrock, and thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.